This is Points North, a show from Interlochen Public Radio, where we hear about life in northern Michigan through the news, the people, and the places. I'm your host, Dan Wanshura. Coming up later on the show, northern Michigan's signature cherry industry is struggling. It is kind of frustrating for a farmer to have his livelihood hang in the balance of so many political decisions, but that's where we stand right now. Farmers face stiff foreign competition, and they're caught in the crossfire of the U.S.-China trade war. Plus, IPR contributor Micah Sullivan uses this time of year as an excuse to ask people about ghosts. But first, we're going to take a trip to Jacob's Corn Maze in Traverse City, where people get lost in the tall stalks of corn for spooky fun each fall. It's located on a 126-year-old farm. IPR's Taylor Wisner went out on a blustery day this week to learn what brings people back year after year. That's the sound of wet stalks of corn, smacking in the wind at the entrance of Jacob's corn maze. But the maze master at Jacob's farm, Brett Hood, says the windy and rainy conditions aren't keeping people away. He says already three groups have come today for the maze. The farm attracts thousands of tourists who are drawn to the area to see the fall colors. Brett says the maze has an elaborate theme that changes each year. It's been Michigan-themed, shaped like a mitten, and last year was all about the Coast Guard. This year is outer space. We have sort of a sunburst at the center of the maze, and then there's sort of an alien creature, lots of swirls like comets flying through the cosmos. We have Saturn with some rings. Brett says it usually takes about an hour and a half for most people to walk the four to five mile path. He says there are two ways to tackle the maze. There's the color map, which makes it easier to stay on track, and a black and white one, which is a lot harder. So all my gaming friends came up with the idea that this is, this is way more challenging. And they actually keep track on the black and white version where they've been in the maze so that they don't backtrack as much. And this can take three to four hours to really find all 18 stations. And to me, that's, that's way more fun, much more challenging. Brett says the maze design technology gets better every year. They can add more elaborate paths that make the maze more difficult. He says the design process takes all winter, and when the corn has grown a few feet in the spring, a professional cutter creates the path. And when he arrives, he has our map on his iPad, and he'll unload his tractor and tiller. He, this year he started at 11 o'clock at night, and he doesn't need to see where he's going because he's looking at the map on his device. So whenever it pings in his earphones, he knows to stop tilling turn to a certain direction until for a little longer until it pings and that takes them close to 10 hours to rough in the design. It's this kind of detail that brings Caden Phelps and Monica Van Gillis to visit from Reed City. Caden's been to the maze several times and likes the challenge but Monica was motivated to move quickly. We definitely used the colored copy and cheated a little bit um, because with the rain coming we're a little wet. But she says the weather didn't ruin the experience. Oh, it was super fun. And it was actually kind of nice coming on a, a little bit crummy of a day because no one else was in there. So we could go at our own pace, screw around, you know, laugh because we took a wrong turn. <laughs> Brett says customers have been happy. They've had over a thousand this Saturday who stayed around for their turn at the Apple Slingshot and a ride on a horse-drawn carriage. For Points North, I'm Taylor Wisner. This is Points North. I'm Dan Wanshura. In the midst of tension between the U.S. and global trade partners like Turkey, 
Northern Michigan's iconic cherry industry is stuck in the middle. Tart cherry farmers have been undercut by foreign competitors for years, and they thought tariffs implemented by the Trump administration would help. But they haven't. IPR's Max Johnston has the story. Jim Bardenhagen is a fifth-generation cherry farmer in Sutton's Bay, Michigan. For decades, Bardenhagen has grown tart cherries, which are used in things like cherry pies and turnovers. But right now, a tractor is pulling the tart cherry trees from his orchard. Bardenhagen is sad to see these trees go, but says he has no other choice. You know, we're not, we're not making our costs on them right now, and so it's hard to, hard to spend money to raise them. Tart cherries are northern Michigan's signature industry. You see them on roadside stands, in convenience stores. Heck, our airport is even called Cherry Capital Airport. Michigan farmers produce about 75% of the tart cherries made in the U.S. But Bardenhagen says their price has plummeted in the past few years. We love cherries. I mean, we've always grown cherries on this farm. We just figured right now is the time to take these out. It's, you know, we're... The market's not there. For years, cheap tart cherries from Poland, Hungary, and especially Turkey have taken over the U.S. market. Domestic tart cherries sold for about $4 per pound on average, while Turkish cherries went for 89 cents. We're not afraid of competition as long as it's fair. That's Nels Veliket. He's part of an industry group that spent nearly $2 million to investigate Turkish cherries. They claim the Turkish government was illegally subsidizing their farms. After years of research and lobbying, they got the International Trade Commission to pick up the case. The result? Huge tariffs on Turkish exporters, some as high as 700 percent. That was a big win for Michigan farmers and could mean the end of Turkey as a global competitor. But Veliket isn't celebrating. Since that win, cherry exports have skyrocketed in other countries like Brazil and Hungary. It is like whack-a-mole. And it started in Turkey. And now it's migrated to Brazil. And where will it go next? John Slangerup is the CEO of American Global Logistics, an international import-export firm. He says countries and manufacturers will find creative ways to get around tariffs. For example, Slangerup says if an exporter wants to avoid a tariff, they can send an unfinished product to another country. Finish them there and then move those goods through that other country to the um, consuming country. While it's not clear if Turkish cherry exporters are doing that, Slangerup says it happens all the time. Overall, he says getting fair trade takes more than just tariffs. Many cherry farmers look to the Trump administration to help. They thought aggressive stances on foreign exporters would mean more competitive prices. But Veliket says Trump isn't fighting for tart cherry farmers. Unlike bigger ag industries, they don't get the federal government's attention. These things are being pushed forward by a very small group of people. We don't have a lobby like the steel lobby. We don't have a lobby like the soybean lobby. The tart cherry industry is also dealing with the fallout of the trade war between China and the U.S. Chinese tariffs on U.S. agriculture products essentially cut domestic cherry growers out of their market. That cost U.S. cherry farmers an estimated $11 million in lost profit, according to a 2018 study. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has subsidies for farmers hurt by Chinese tariffs. But tart cherry farmers aren't eligible for that program because the USDA argues they're only indirectly affected by the tariffs. Veliket says that's a technical oversight that could be easily changed. 
but you know there there isn't a benevolent bureaucracy awaiting the opportunity to help these small industries. Last month, Veliket and other cherry farmers spent $30,000 to investigate a new competitor, Brazil. The hope is, after a few more million dollars and a couple years of paperwork, the International Trade Commission will take up that case too. In the meantime, the industry is not doing well. Veliket worries that cherry farmers are stuck in a cycle where cheap foreign cherries come in, domestic growers raise the alarm, but they can't do anything about it. For Points North, I'm Max Johnston. I'm Dan Wanshura. This is Points North. Halloween is coming up next week. And so IPR contributor Micah Sullivan wants to know if you believe in ghosts. So my question for you is, do you believe in spirits? Uh, I'm kind of a seeing as believing person and, and I've never seen one, so I'm skeptical. Uh, I saw at Camp Lejeune something walking across the uh, lake. It was a woman. It was. Oh, walking on water? Yes. Well, all right then. Absolutely not. Oh, I, you look like you're going to say absolutely yes. No. No, no, I'm, not no. Super, I'm not superstitious either. Yeah. I believe in a greater God as far as my religion, but I don't believe in like a spooky stuff and none of that. Halloween is a ridiculous uh, holiday. Yeah. I was at my hairdresser and she turned on the light and it was flickering, which usually means there's some kind of a weird energy. And then the other day in my kitchen, my light was flickering again. So we think it's my mom. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I remember uh, toys moving, un 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 being un being able not being able to explain toys moving or making strange noises. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Did it happen often? Uh, often enough, I remember it, yeah. I mean, they were some of those traumatic memories from childhood. Uh, I believe in ghosts. There. <laughs> That's it. You're just convinced. Because stuff is creepy and ghosts make stuff creepy. Thanks to Micah Sullivan for that piece. That's the show this week. I'm Dan Wanshura. Noelle Riley is our executive director. Tune into Points North every Friday on Interlochen Public Radio or listen anytime at pointsnorthradio.org. <laughs>